Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your working in our lives. We ask this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds that we may hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have a confession to make. I, uh, I struggle with that old nature of mine. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it feels like I work and I work and I try to make things right and uh, things keep cropping up. And sometimes I'll focus on one area, you know, and I'll try to get it set just right the way it should be. And as soon as I feel like I've got that taken care of, I look over my shoulder and other things are cropping up. And finally, uh, a couple of years ago, I said to myself, I quit. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I called up a couple of friends and I said, I need help. I need you to help me with this. And, and so ever since then, once a week or so, uh, Ryan and Isaac Pelletier come over and they mow my lawn and they weed whack. And my nature has never looked better. And uh, I think if you have trouble with your nature, you should call them because they, they can make it look good. Oh, really, oh, really what did you think I was talking about? Uh, holiness, right? We're talking about holiness today. That's a weighty idea. It's heavy. But the scriptures are full of this idea. And here's just a few passages. From Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. First Peter, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. In James, for when your endurance is fully developed... You will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Several years ago, I was at a picnic with a group of families, and I was approached by a friend, and he kind of approached me in a conspiratorial kind of manner, right? It's like he had something to tell me, but he didn't want everybody to hear. So we moved off to the side of the group, and we kind of turned our backs to everybody else, and I leaned in so that I could hear what he had to say. And he said, John. I think I went all day yesterday without sinning, right? 24 hours. We're like, that's great. We did a little celebration complete with a spiked hot dog, you know. The question is, how long can you go without willfully sinning, right? I mean, let's do a little hypothetical here. Let's say you pray a prayer of confession and repentance, right? And in that moment, you are forgiven. You know, dare I say, holy, How long does that condition last? Uh, 30 seconds? A minute? How about an hour? What if if this happens right before bed and you fall asleep? Then you got seven hours, right? Or six or whatever you sleep. Why not a whole month? I put this question to our senior high boys Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago. And one of them thought only for a second and he said, uh, 12.8 seconds. To which I said, guys, not every time that you think about sex is it a sin. 
But we're skeptical, aren't we? We are skeptical about our ability to be holy. When I've brought this question up with our teens, you know, and I'll read to them that passage that where Jesus says, be perfect. You know, they are unwilling to say that Jesus meant for us to be perfect. They'll say, it's a goal. Jesus was setting a goal that we should shoot for. He knew we could not achieve that. But there are many passages in Scripture, including large chunks of Ephesians, that indicate God really does want us to be holy. Unfortunately, there are also large uh, swaths of Christianity that believe it is simply not possible for human beings on this side of the earthly plane to go without sinning. Instead, we hear from those camps two contradictory and, you know, sort of schizophrenia-inducing messages— which are these, one, do not sin, but on the other hand, it is not possible for you not to sin. And unfortunately, these contradictory messages can converge to produce a sort of a hopelessness in us about our ability to live a victorious Christian life. And this morning, I want to argue that Jesus died on the cross not only to save us from the consequences of our sin— so that we can go to heaven with him when we die. But he also came to save us from our sins, to cleanse us, to give us a new and a full life, a new self, as it says in Ephesians 4, a self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God wants us to be holy. And that idea carries with it at least one very significant implication. For the Christian, it is possible not to sin. In fact, in Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul is insisting on it. He says, in the NIV it says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. In the NLT, which you have in front of you, it says, With the Lord's authority I say this, don't live as the Gentiles live. They're confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They're far from God. Their hearts and their minds are far from God. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But, he says, that is not how you have learned about Christ. Since you've heard about Jesus and you've learned the truth, throw off that sinful nature. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature which is created to be like God in true righteousness, truly righteous and holy. I think on some level, we get this, right? I mean, God doesn't want us to sin. That was sort of the point of the whole Ten Commandment thing, right? Don't sin. But we start to get nervous when we think about actually living that out in the day-to-day possibilities of how we do that. In Psalm 51, David captures our mindset, right? He says, I know my transgressions and my sin. It's always before me. Right? I mean, I know what my life is like. I know what my family is like. We're not, you know, the worst people in town. I mean, we're we're certainly far better than the Odins. Okay. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, we have the Jordans right at the end of our street. They're, They're much better than we are. I mean, we're kind of in the middle, right? We're, we're all kind of in the middle there somehow. Perfection? Holiness? What exactly does that mean? 
In the last couple chapters of Ephesians, Paul describes holiness and, and how we live out this new self. And he does it in some pretty concrete terms. There are a bunch of things that holy people do and a bunch that they don't do. All right. In fact, there's so many. I put them on the list, but I put them all on one slide and they're kind of hard to read. There it is. See. Here's some of the things that holy people don't do. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't engage in unwholesome talk. They don't grieve the Holy Spirit. They're not bitter. They don't have rage, anger, malice, and they don't brawl. I had to really underline that one at the 830 service. Those guys are brawlers. Uh, They don't slander. They don't participate in sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, greed. They're not obscene. They're not foolish. No coarse joking. And they don't get drunk. That's what they don't do. On the do side of things, holy people love like Christ did. They participate in wholesome talk that builds people up. They work. They share what they have. They're kind, compassionate, forgiving, thankful, filled with the Spirit. They sing and they make music to the Lord. They honor and they obey those in authority. They're humble and gentle. They submit to each other. They respect each other. They serve each other. And they pray always. So now let's see. Uh, I haven't been drunk yet today. I can check that one off. I haven't stolen anything yet today. I can check that one off. When we go down the don't list, it's, you know, we're pretty clear about that one. But when we get to the do list, it gets tougher, right? Have I been completely thankful today, content in what I have and who I am? And have I been respectful to everyone, including my family? It's, it really is a daunting list in many ways. How is it possible for God to expect holiness of us? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul makes clear the condition of our existence before Christ's intervention. He says, you were dead. You were dead in our sins. In that condition, of course, we're trapped in our sin, able only to gratify the cravings of the flesh. Without Christ, we are incapable of not sinning. We're stuck both with the consequences of our sin and in the present reality of the daily mire of our sin. We're spiritually dead, unable to ambulate, without hope, deserving of wrath, as it says in verse 3. The analogy of death that Paul uses here is pretty stark. It's an absence of awareness. We're not even aware of our sin. It's a clear line and a picture, frankly, of ultimate despair. As the great philosopher Miracle Max says, the only thing left is to go through our pockets and look for loose change. The next line, however, is a breath of hope. Verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Spiritual life is a very different situation. We have a new spiritual reality characterized by life, a new awareness of sin and of God and of his working in our lives. The experience of inviting Christ into our hearts and our lives is the beginning of his victorious work in us. At that moment, we're saved from the consequences of our sin and also we embark on a journey of redemption, an adventure of new and full life. 
And this carries with it some very important new realities. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, When you believed, you were marked with the Holy Spirit. As a believer in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit resides within you. This divine presence makes us alive to a new spiritual reality. In verse 17 of that chapter, Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That, by the way, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's power. So it brings a new understanding. It brings a new awareness of an interaction with God, a new understanding of our purpose and our hope, and it's made possible by God's mighty power. We have been made alive with Christ. It's now possible not to sin. My dad, uh, my dad was an immense man. And I don't know if any of you ever met him, but he made me look little. He was a big guy. And in my mind, he was constantly doing impossible things. And his, impossible was his specialty. And I remember one time we were working on a project, and I don't remember exactly what the project was, but we were working with steel, which, as you know, is a very hard substance, not easy to manipulate. And we were trying to get this thing to work and make it happen. And at one point, I finally came to the conclusion, it just wasn't going to happen. We weren't going to be able to do it. And I must have said that to my dad because he stopped and he looked at me kind of quizzically. And he said, son, this is just steel. We're men. We have to win. <laughs> is that not a great line? It's just, how does he think of these things? And I would say to you guys, This is just sin. You and I are children of the almighty God. His spirit lives in us. We have access to his power. Victory is guaranteed. It's a guarantee. We have to win. It is possible not to sin. In this new life that Christ, uh, this new life in Christ puts another very important resource at our disposal. And it's a critical resource, although sometimes a little underutilized. It's critical in our struggle to be holy, and that is community. All the way through Ephesians, Paul is describing how Christ's sacrifice on the cross has made it possible for us, both Jews and Gentiles, to be part of one body. To be, as he says, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And when we get here to chapter 4, Paul makes some pretty strong statements with regard to the critical nature of our relationship to each other in this process. He says that Christ has given to his body, in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in order to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And what's the result of that? Maturity. That together we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying that as we commit to each other and as we each do our part, we build up the body so that we'll become in every respect, as it says in verse 15, every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
we need each other in this process. On July 24th, uh, 2002, at about 9 p.m., there were two teams of miners working in the Q Creek mine. Nine guys each, 18 guys. And some of you may remember this. I remember when this happened and it was, uh, it, it captivated my attention. One of the teams, this just happened in Pennsylvania, southern Pennsylvania. One of the teams accidentally dug into a nearby abandoned mine. They were operating a massive mining machine, a 60-ton piece of equipment. And it was kind of charging ahead. And the maps that they had were, were poorly constructed. And they didn't realize they were so close to this old abandoned mine that had been worked in 1913. And when the machine punched through and breached the wall, the old mine was flooded with water. And 50 million gallons of water began pouring into the space where they were working. And the team who made the breach immediately got on the phone to the other team that was deeper in the mine and said, you have to get out now. We're being flooded. And team two ran for the surface as fast as they could. It took them about 45 minutes and they were neck deep wading through the water in some places, but they made it out. And when they got out, they, they immediately called for help because team one didn't make it. The water had come in, and to get out, they had to go downhill first. And when they got to the lowest point, it was already flooded, and they couldn't get through. So by noon the next day, Team 1, nine miners, had retreated to the highest ground they could find. And with the water continuing to rise just 70 feet away, the foreman of the team figured they had about an hour left to live. So in that hour, they wrote notes. They used some old building material that they had there, wrote notes to family and sealed it into a watertight container. They prayed with each other. And then they tied themselves together with a rope. And as they said, to die as a family. Now, eventually they got everybody out safely. And that was a miracle and a lot of heroic efforts. But I remember hearing about that when they tied themselves together. I thought, what a fantastic picture of community, of dedication, of commitment. And I think that sometimes when we feel the most stuck and the most beaten down by sin, maybe that thing that we just can't seem to kick, and we feel guilt and we feel self-loathing, and it's a dark place, right? That's a lonely place. We think we are on our own, but we are not. We are roped together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to know that we're in this together. And that as I commit to you and you commit to me and we each do our part, that we can together achieve that whole measure of the fullness of Christ. But in order to do this, we have to give up our secrets. We have to go to each other for help when we struggle We have to live so connected to each other that we know when someone is hurting. We have to not be afraid to receive one who is hurting. No matter how difficult that is to do, no matter how messy it is, no matter how hard it is to see your brother and sister and or sister in that situation. No matter how inept we feel, right, in some of those situations. I don't know what to say. I don't know. I don't know how to address this. In that moment, that's when you say, you know what, I'm gonna, I don't know how to, what to say here to help, and I don't even know what to do, but I'm tying my rope to you, brother. And we're going, if, if you go down, we're going down together, right? 
And so you tie your rope to that one who is hurting and, and I tie my rope to you and someone else ties their rope to me and we all tie our ropes together and tie them to him, right? And together, together we can be holy. Together we can be who God wants us to be. I want you to hear what I have not said here this morning. I have not said that as a Christian, it is impossible to sin. I haven't said that. What I have said is that by God's grace and by his power, it is possible not to sin. God's power has awakened us to a new life, a new spiritual reality. And he has given us all the tools that we need to live holy lives. And to me, this is hope. This is a hopeful thing. So that as we together embrace this life of aliveness to God, and as you live out Christ's work in you, and you do your part to build me up and equip me, and I do the same for you, no matter how bad today was, no matter how badly I blew it today, or how bleak the outlook looks, I know I have hope. Tomorrow, I could be more like my Savior than I was today. I'm not stuck. And someday... Maybe soon, together, we will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. May it be so.